What's up everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy aka DJ Shrimp and you're listening to Millionaire 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 Interviews. Interviews. On this episode, we bring you another special guest from Shark Tank. If you want to check out other Shark Tank companies we've had on this podcast, then be sure to check out these episodes during your next romantic walk on the beach. Episode 11 with Eli Crane of Bottle Breacher. Episode 35 with Jim Salikas of Cousins Maine Lobster. And episode 38 with Aaron Krause of Scrub Daddy. Now, on to the show. Now I sort of look at every business in that perspective. Am I really meeting unmet demand here? Or am I creating something and then trying to sell it to people? Because that's a nightmare business. And the first one is easy. People just fall over themselves to give you money. It's like, who cares about the upside? He's like, worry about going to zero. That's the only thing you should worry about. One tool that's just incredibly valuable. When I tell people about this, they don't even believe me that this thing exists. <laughs> it's called a... Like I went to China the first time ever in 2015, and I've been sourcing there since 2004 without ever, you know, worrying about quality or any of that, just because of, you know, a tool like that. So my name is Stefan Arstall. I'm the founder and CEO of Tower Paddleboards, a direct-to-consumer brand that focuses on beach lifestyle products, and we sort of champion work-life balance. I also am the author of a book called The Five-Hour Workday, based on an experiment my company did about two and a half years ago, where we moved the whole company to a five-hour workday, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., straight through, no lunch, to try to compress the day and get more productivity out of people. I've been in the online space since 1999, went to grad school down here in San Diego, and I've kind of been here ever since. Why don't we just talk about the five-hour thing first? What made you want to go ahead and start a five-hour workday? It's kind of the way that I'd always been working, you know, get in, get out. When you're the owner of the company, you don't manage yourself by the clock, you manage yourself by productivity. I felt it was working very successful to me, but I had you know a whole team of people in this startup and we were working sort of these startup hours. And I was trying to like squeeze more work out of everybody. I decided, and we were a beach lifestyle company, right? We got our offices like you know, a block and a half from the beach. And I felt that at some point it just didn't fit our brand. This idea that we were telling everybody to, hey, knock off work and go paddle boarding or surfing while we're you know in there burning midnight oil. And so I thought we, uh, you know, part of uh, living this more authentic brand was we had to sort of live that brand. So that's what we decided to just, just do an experiment. The idea here is not to just take it easy and see if we can sort of coast here. The idea is to squeeze people for time and get more productivity. Was there a turning point that made you want to do this? There was a book I read. It was called What Great Brands Do. And it was talking about these seven points of, you know, these great brands throughout history. And there were some very sort of counterintuitive things in there that it was talking about. One of them was great brands don't give back. So they don't like, you know, green wash their brand. They don't, you know, make a bunch of money and then, you know, do something here on the side because they feel like, honestly, what they're doing as a business is giving back to the world. That's what the business is about is creating this thing. Another one of these you know, seven points was that great brands basically live their brand. They do their brand as business. That is where, you know, a brand has to get this emotional connection with its consumers. It has to be believable and it has to be authentic. So you really need to analyze like, what your brand is about and then try to make your culture fit that. So that was a big part of it. 
How did everyone take the implementation of this five-hour workday? Well, it was sort of a surprise. So I came in and just told everybody it was up Thursday or Friday. And I said, on Monday, we're going to move to this. You know, five hours, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. straight through. You get rid of lunch, which gets rid of a lot of the waste of lunch. You know, just where are you going to eat? How long are people going for lunch? Or do they have a food coma when they get back? By just getting rid of that, we were really going to get five solid hours. Instead of before we were working nine to five, which is really only an eight-hour day with an hour lunch in there. We were only getting seven hours. So I felt it wasn't really a small drop, but to workforce, if you're walking out of the office at one, I mean, that's a huge difference. That's a life-changing thing. So I told them, okay, this is what we're doing, doing this to get more productivity out of you. I'm sort of giving you your life back and giving you a lifestyle kind of like I enjoy, but you have to be able to figure out how to get everything you were doing before or more done or you'll be fired. So I'm giving you life back, but I'm putting on more pressure. Looking back, what was done to make that productivity happen? Was there certain changes that everyone made with technology? That's the thing. There's not really a, a rule book to it. I wrote a book about it, and it was just about our experience. And a lot of people's you know, critique of the book was, well, you didn't really give us a game plan of how to, uh, how to go about and get our work done with this five-hour workday. And we do have fivehourworkday.com. There's this downloadable PDF that talks about like 37 or 38 tools that we have identified, basically, and we use to work at just this faster clip. Um, so there are certain tools that we use. It's really different for every, everybody in the organization. And the idea is you put everybody in the organization in a position of being their own sort of efficiency expert. Uh, you know, we had a retail shop. We had a shipping department, you know, warehousing. We had customer service. All of them went to five hours. And a lot of those you think are just non-negotiable. Like you can't just not answer the phone all day or your, your shipping department can't all of a sudden magically ship in five hours what they used to ship in eight hours. If you just throw all those things that you just assume is the reality of the situation, you throw them out the window and you just be unreasonable and say, you have to figure out how to get it done in five hours. People figure out a way. Our shipping department took the average ship time of an order from about five minutes down to like 2.6 minutes. And they did that in about three months after, you know, uh, sort of going to this. And it was just productivity that sort of magically found its way. And before, we weren't a really old school company. We're an internet company, some pretty smart kids here. We were using productivity tools, but a lot of them, we weren't using them to the degree that we could be using them. So that's what everybody sort of figured out their own way to work faster. I think that's important that you pointed out. Everyone thinks that maybe you have to return that phone call or that you have to return that email. If I don't feel like answering, you know, you don't have to. Like there, I think too many people get locked in that you have to do something. And then it's like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you don't send it back? Yeah, that's a good point. And obviously, you know, my title is sort of a riff on uh, Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. And one of the things he talks about there is management by absence. And this is exactly one of the tools you use to do this is you just take things that you think are non-negotiable and you just take them off the table. Like don't open your mail for three months or six months at a time and see what happens. It just saves you a chunk of time. Don't answer your phone. You know, answer voicemail for a month. Just see what happened. And, you know, even start, you know, I did this with my other company, buybookforchips.com, where it was a one-man show. This was years ago. And I went from, you know, shipping and working on that company five days a week to working Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I just took Tuesday and Thursday and, and spent that time entirely working on another business. The reality of this was customers didn't care at all, didn't even notice. It just freed up basically 15, 20 hours of my week to devote to something else. And I've been working years and not knowing that. So that's a very powerful method is just stop doing stuff, see what breaks, something breaks, go back to it. But a lot of times you'll find that stuff doesn't break. 
And we can put in the show notes the list or the link that you're talking about that people can get the tools that you're talking about. How many were there? It's like 30 or 40 productivity tools, but it's at fivehourworkday.com. Could you say the best one that worked for you as far as being a business owner? Because hopefully the people listening are inspiring to be entrepreneurs or own their own company. And everyone has a different viewpoint on things. So the shipping guys are going to be a little bit different than a guy who's actually owning the business and looking at it from that point. Yeah, yeah. From a, and for my particular type of business, we're, we're a business that we're an online direct to consumer retailer of Beats Lifestyle products. So we develop these products ourselves. So there's a lot of sourcing that goes on for that. So one tool that's just incredibly valuable. When I tell people about this, they don't even believe me that this thing exists. <laughs> it's called a panjiva.com, P-A-N-J-I-V-A.com. Essentially what it is, is a sourcing tool. Every container that comes into the United States, because of the 911 and they had like the American Freedom Act or some, some kind of act, they had to declare it had to be public information on the weight of this container, a general description of contents, its origination, address, name of company, and destination address company. All public information, right? So Panjiva went and they aggregated all this information and made it searchable over a period of years. And so you can go in there and you, like for my paddleboard company, you go in there, you search up stand-up paddleboards. It will show you all the shipments of stand-up paddleboards. So then you can basically identify manufacturers. And then you can search on that manufacturer's name and find out all of the people. You can drill down to a manufacturer and find out all of the shipments that manufacturer did to you know, its customers. And then you can basically identify like who the competitors are and sort of get market share information. Because you see volume. You see if things are going up or down. You can go to your competitors and put in their company name. And then it will show you all the shipments that they get. Now, this is very partial information because it's taken off of like bill of lading things, which are like handwritten stuff, you know, coming from China and, you know, all over the world in different languages. So it's not a perfect picture, but even the partial picture is just amazing information and an amazing way to source uh, products. Because the, the critical thing is here, you can get a quality score on a manufacturer. Whereas prior to this, 20 years ago, you basically have to have a guy on the ground in China, like, you know, knocking on doors and trying to figure out who do we source from? And you'd have, you know, experts within China that you would do, but it involved a lot of flying back and forth and doing this, taking years to set up a good manufacturer contract. And then a massive leap forward was Alibaba. And a lot of people have heard of and used Alibaba, essentially in the early days, Alibaba does a bunch of stuff now. But in the early days, Alibaba was just sort of a sourcing tool. And you would go on there and put in stand-up paddleboards, and it would show you 2,000 companies that supposedly make paddleboards. But the problem was, it was really 1,900 middlemen, probably 50 scam artists, probably five real factories, and probably 45 like crappy factories. So it was overwhelming. You didn't have a quality score on anybody there. So you really can't write a $50,000 check and expect to get good product there. With Panjiva, you can see, okay, well, these guys are filling orders for three of the four top brands in the industry. Their shipments are going up. You know their quality control is good at that factory. And then so you write them a $50,000 check. Like I went to China the first time ever in 2015. And I've been sourcing there since 2004, you know, with the poker chip company before the paddleboard company without ever, you know, worrying about quality or any of that, just because of, you know, a tool like that. That Panjiva tool has been around, I think about 12 years. I'll talk at universities, even to like, you know, people that are in procurement, they have no idea that this tool even exists. The reality is you can do what used to take six months to 12 months. You can do it two to three hours in an afternoon from your computer. That's the kind of time-saving tool that people, because they haven't been forced to find these tools, 
are not finding them. They exist. They're not really expensive. Me personally, in my free time, when I'm looking at the podcast, I'm always researching just different things to make it more popular, try different methods. And I don't know if, if you're doing that, quote unquote, in your free time, if you're doing the five hour workday, but I think a lot of people just kind of get stuck in their momentum or system and they don't ever expand to try to find something out like you did with this Panjiva because uh, that seems like a game changer for you. Well, yeah, a lot of your job in the, because the market moves so fast, especially online marketing moves so fast is you've got to spend a good chunk of your time learning. So you're compressing your work day to get sort of what you have to get done. And then it frees you up to do what you want to do. I'm an entrepreneur, so I'll probably work another five hours on a different company or starting up something else. Sometimes I'll go to the beach. So it is freeing up that time and education is a, is a critical thing. If you're not spending probably 20% of your time educating yourself, you're going to fall behind. I want to move on from the book, but after this, did you get any pushback from like having be called the five hour workday? For what? Because it's close to Timothy Ferris? Yeah, I didn't know if people were like haters on because of it. I mean, I think it was kind of smart if you're just playing off of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not really. I mean, Tim Ferriss even, he retweeted some stuff about what we were doing in the company. I think it was effective with that. And I mentioned him several times in the book. I wasn't trying to you know, steal his title or whatever. But it was really a different book because Tim's book was talking about, you know, in the four hour work week, it was talking about how to do this for an individual. Here's how you take your life back. You free yourself from the corporate world and you get a bunch of these, you know, outsourced minions like working for you and you automate your whole life. What this was, five hour workday was talking about, can you apply sort of a lot of these same principles to an entire organization, not just one person getting other people to do the work, but an entire organization? And how would that, how does that work? So, and, and it's an experiment. We started maybe two and a half years ago, about six months ago, things went well. So the first year after implementing it, our revenues went up about 50%. So we were at 5 million and we went to about seven and a half million. And then the next year we did 7.2 million. The paddleboard industry slowed down a little bit, a lot more competition. I mean, everything in the online space sort of does that. People catch up to you. So we actually moved away from the five-hour workday about six months ago. We are now, we're just doing it in the summertime, June 1st to September 30th. And that is when we do 70% of our revenue. So that's the busiest time of year. And that's when we're implementing the five-hour workday because there are like real benefits to squeezing yourself or time during the busy period. And then in the rest of the year, the off-season, we call it, we go to startup hours. And the reason we did this is we started to lose our, you know, our sort of company culture when you're in a startup, like you're in the trenches together working these long hours, you build very strong bonds with everybody. We had a period in there where we have a nine-person company, we'd lost four people in a, in a matter of 90 days. And I was like, why are people leaving this company? They're they got a five-hour workday. They're paid well. We're an exciting company. It's sort of an exciting industry. It didn't make any sense to me. But the reality was people weren't necessarily leaving the company. They sort of leave the people they work with. And it's very hard to do that when you have these very strong bonds. And by checking out at noon, one o'clock, everybody's, the rest of their life would become very big. And their work life was just this thing they did in the morning to sort of afford them this lifestyle. And we lost those common bonds. That was a real unexpected consequence of it. And so I'm sort of playing around with it now. I figure if we can get those bonds in the off season and then during the summer, do the five-hour workday. So it's a live experiment. Just like all business, it's just trying different things and tweaking it and seeing what works and doesn't. So I think that's smart to kind of figure it out and try something else instead of just being stuck with that for the rest of your life that you're like, oh, I wrote that book and I'm only going to do this forever. Yeah. And it's that's exactly, you hit on a good point there. It's about trying stuff new. I mean, what you're doing in podcasting here is very interesting because we had a lot of media come to us, you know, about the book. And we had like one media company, they were in Germany. They call us on a Friday and they fly like three people here to interview on Monday, they've got a whole film crew or whatever. 
and they do this whole thing and they get put something on TV there. And then we had, what was the name of the company? I don't know, some online company like BuzzFeed or something like that. They were in New York and the guy just sort of calls, hey, can we do an interview? He does a Skype interview, me and one of my, uh, my sort of general manager in about probably 45 minutes of his time. You know, three weeks later, they post it online and they get four and a half million views of this video where you've got this German TV company that's working really old school, flying people around, putting it on regular TV, and they probably get 50,000 views. There's more efficient ways to do that. And until you let go of the old way of doing that and start experimenting with new ways, which you think wouldn't be viable, you're not going to move forward. You're not going to become more productive. You've had an eclectic career. Do you want to talk about when you went to college, where you went, and then graduated and kind of walk through what you've learned through all the companies that you've been a part of? Yeah. So I, I graduated college in 96 in above Seattle. So and there was a pretty significant internet culture up there. You've got you know Microsoft, you've got you know Amazon starting up there. There was another one called Home Grocer, some kind of grocery store that was early on. But when I got out of undergrad, it really hadn't clued in this whole the internet thing. Like even at the end of college, you know, I traveled around and we were traveling through Australia for three months. We weren't even getting people's email addresses at that point to keep in touch with everybody. Using the internet really only happened about halfway through school, so maybe in 94, 93, 94. So I sort of went through that transition in undergrad, but I was still clueless as to the potential of the internet. And I couldn't make any money because I had an undergraduate business degree at the time. And I was going to make it like eight bucks an hour or something. So I was still bartending. That's how I put myself through school. So I was bartending on the weekend. And I did that for, uh, I don't know, like a couple of years. And then I decided to go back to grad school. And I uh, moved down to San Diego to go to grad school. And I graduated in that in 99. That was sort of, you know, they were just handing out internet jobs as you graduated, basically. And so I started with an internet portal for the radiology, medical imaging industry. And it was a small company, maybe five, six people, and it was pre-launch. And we went from sort of pre-launch to dominant industry leader as sort of a news and information portal for that medical imaging industry in a period of three years. And that's where I really cut my teeth in the online space and really understood the potential of this. You know, we were going up against, you know, the GEs of the world and the existing like, you know, publications. There was a publication called Diagnostic Imaging, which was dominant for 20, 30 years. And in just a few short years, we were able to leap past the established players by just sort of doing this sort of internet marketing type approach. And so I worked in that for about five years, and then you know, I always wanted to do something on my own. And I jumped off in 2003. I started a company called BuyPokerChips.com, which was just, there was a huge push in popularity of poker at the time because of the World Series poker uh, was suddenly you know televised on sort of major networks. There was demand for poker chips. I created poker chips from sort of the same manufacturers that made, made them for casinos, sold them you know, all over the world. So that was my first internet business. And that sort of had a, uh, and this is a, you know, a recurring theme in the, in the internet is you're going to have this sort of boom and bust happen. That business probably peaked at six or $700,000 a year in revenue. How far into the company were you when that was peaking in revenue? Probably a year and a half, two years. I didn't quit my day job. I kept my day job for a year while I was running that side business because I didn't really have the ability to start a business. I started that on like $10,000 worth of credit cards. It was $120,000 in debt from grad school. I was uh, I was married in 2002. So married, we had a baby in 2004. I quit my job about, I don't know, five or six months before my son was born. So I had to have like a a stable you know, side business before I was willing to make that jump. So I was doing 50000 a month in revenue before I made the jump. 
And was there something in particular that you saw why you chose to do the poker route? Well, it was something I knew because I was playing poker and wanted to get good chips. I went out there and looked for good chips and it was ridiculous. You could find like these cheap plastic chips, but you couldn't really get what you get in the casinos. I knew like people who've been in casinos, they really like those nice chips. They'd be willing to pay for that. There was one company that sold them, but it took like four to six months to get them. And I'm like, that's just insane. (laughs) So I basically started ordering from that company, stock set of chips ahead of time. And then I would get them and then I would start selling them and shipping them, you know, 24 hours, like right away. They just sold out immediately. So then I just bought more and did that. And then I started identifying other manufacturers that could do this for me. It sort of took off from there, but it, like I said, it peaked and then popularity of that business sort of leveled off and a bunch of competitors flooded in. And so it just started trickling down. And today I still have that business, but it does maybe $60,000 a year, where it once did $600,000 a year. So it's one-tenth of what it was at the peak. I don't really focus on that anymore because we'll do that on a you know a, a good day in the, in the paddleboard business, what we do in a year there. So I've taken my eye off the ball a little bit. I could probably do two or three times that revenue, but there's this fall off that happens and everything gets commoditized on the internet. The same thing started to happen in the paddleboard business where it really ramped up it levels off a little bit, a bunch of competition comes in and sort of can copy whatever you're doing. And I mean, down to the, they copy the look of your products. They copy the text from your website. They copy how you're taking your images. They copy everything. They copy how you're selling and where you're selling. So you got to kind of get on to the next thing. And that's why with the you know tower paddleboards, we started with that notion in mind. We realized that paddleboards, when we started in 2010, it was the booming industry it was growing 100% a year. And this was going to be how we were going to get into this beach lifestyle company, like a larger surf brand. We were going to ride the wave of this paddleboard push and then sell everything, basically create a you know clothing company, surfboard company. Today, we were developing bikes, we were developing e-bikes, we were developing snorkel equipment, we have surfboards, we have skateboards. We've really expanded broadly because of my fear that same thing's going to happen that happened in the poker chip industry. I've seen this uh, story happen before. Could you talk to us about the transition of the poker chip company? And did you have a couple of people working for you? Was there a struggle if it was slowing down before you started the paddleboard company? The poker chip business was a one-person business, except for about a three-month period, right at the peak of it, where I thought I was literally, you know, when my son was born, this was six months after I quit my day job and maybe a year and a half into the business, I was in the hospital lobby looking at a boating magazine, just like figuring out what kind of yacht I'm going to buy right. and retire. Because I went from making 50000 a year to making that much in a month. It's just like, game over. Yeah. Right? And so a lot of entrepreneurs have this experience that you all of a sudden you're like, well, that was easy. But then reality sort of comes back in and, and these things, they have it flow. But it took six, seven years for that to the poker chip business to really die off. I was looking at starting other businesses because it was going down slowly. It didn't take me a lot of time to run that business, even as a one-person business, maybe 12, 15 hours a week. And then spend the rest of the time trying other businesses. And I tried a number. And then a buddy took me paddleboarding in like 2010. And at the time, I was about six months into starting a portal for the green energy industry, which was also, you know, this booming industry. I was going to do something very similar to what we did in the, uh, the radiology industry, but for the green energy industry, because I knew that model. I knew how to make that successful. But about six months into that, and that required uh, raising capital and doing a lot of stuff that I had no experience with and frankly, I'm not very good at. But he took me paddleboarding and I was just like, holy cow, like, this is a lot easier than surfing. I started looking at the search statistics for this and I realized, holy cow, this business is just blowing up. 
there's nobody that's doing it very well online in sort of a direct consumer fashion. And these things were ridiculously expensive. You know, a paddleboard was twelve to sixteen hundred dollars. It was really just a large surfboard, and it was all because the distribution channel was broken. It was just there's all these middlemen in it that were pushing this price up. And I said, I'm just going to buy from the same factories, sell it direct, and sell it about half price, the same product. And that's what we did. I had to kill part of the poker chip business to do that, though, because I needed money and I had no money. So this was the timing of this, 2010. This is about two years after the crash of the market and the banking industry. So banks weren't lending money. It was just a nightmare time. It was a great time to hire employees because nobody had a job. It was a tough time for businesses. I was even looking for a job about six months into starting the paddleboard company because I was just like, I'm not going to make it here. Nobody would hire me. And it just sort of took off about March of uh, 2011, where our first container of paddleboards basically sold out before they would hit U.S. soil. That sort of validated it. And then I shifted my focus from the poker chip company to the paddleboard company. Within three months, we got a call from Shark Tank, ABC Shark Tank. And it was just a producer one afternoon call. You know, asked me if I wanted to be on the show. I'd never even heard of the show. This was fairly early in the history of Shark Tank. It was season two. They're like, hey, you want to be on this show and raise money or whatever? I'm like, well, I'm not really raising money. And then the guy's like, well, it's on ABC on Friday night. What are you talking about? How have I never heard of this show? And I said, yes, I'll be on your show. And five weeks later, I was pitching to the Sharks. We can talk about the pitch, kind of what they saw and helped you change, I guess, with the tower paddle boards. But looking back, if someone else has a company similar to poker chips where they're kind of seeing things slow down, do you have any suggestions or I guess just realizations now that you're looking back? Did you do everything the way you would do it again? Yeah, you got to realize that things are going to grow faster than you think they're going to grow and they're going to fall off faster than you think they're going to fall off. So you need to be prepared for that. I think it, it catches people by surprise. Even the last year in the paddleboard business, we dropped off maybe 20% from the year before. We had staffed up when we had a new building and our expenses were getting a little out of control. And we had to say, okay, wait a second, is the same thing happening here? But I've been through it before and I was kind of always paranoid about that. Once you get something that's good, you want to get it up and running, automate it as much as you can, and you want to find something else. How long was the paddleboard company running before you went on Shark Tank? And can you tell us about your experience? Yeah. So the paddleboard company was started, I mean, like registered the URL in, I think, like May or June of 2010. We pitched on Shark Tank in, I think, like July of 2011. So it was a little over a year. At the time we pitched, we had $100,000 in lifetime revenue. Well, it's kind of a funny story. So I'd never seen their show. And when the, the producers asked me to you want to be on the show? Okay, you got to send us an audition tape or whatever, like a pitch tape. Didn't even know how to do a video, basically. So I had to put this together and give it to them. I had three days. And so I put it together. And in the tape, I asked for $5 million for 60% of my company. And the producers came back to me laughing. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't even have a company yet. This is ridiculous. Nobody's ever asked for that much money in the history of Shark Tank. And I'm like, well, you know, I went to grad school. I realized these guys, it sounds like they're pretty wealthy individuals. They're not going to play a no man's land of investing between half a million and five million. Why waste their time? They're either going to do a seed investment or they're going to put in like a, a serious investment because it doesn't make sense for them. And then they're going to want control of the company. So that's how I pitched it. And then the producers like, go watch the show. So they you know gave me a couple episodes because it was hard to even find them. And I saw these people like, you know, asking for 5% of my company, oh, you know, give me $60,000. It didn't make any sense to me. But I figured this is more like betting on horses for these guys. When I went on there, I asked for 150000 for 10% of the company, which you know, values it at $1.5 million. When I threw that out there, and I actually trimmed that down because I was going to ask for 
300,000 for 10% of the company. But the day before I pitched, I said, eh, I'm going to cut that down because there's a rule on Shark Tank that you've got to get the amount of money that you ask for. The percentage can go all over the place, but you've got to at least get the money. So you can sort of screw yourself if you ask for too high of a dollar value. Like 5 million? 300,000 for my business. So ask for a lower number and then just get, in, get them compete against each other. So I figured I'd go in there with this low ball price, get a bidding war going. But what happened was I went in there and I, uh, I'm known as the worst pitch in the history of Shark Tank. <laughs> that Bill landed a deal. <laughs> so I went in there and I just sort of fell apart. I lost my sort of prepared, like, you know, two to three minutes feel, froze, and then couldn't get restarted. It was just, it was horrible. So they all thought I was an idiot right off the bat. Then they thought I was asking for way too much valuing this company that had $100,000 in lifetime revenue for $1.5 million. They thought it was just you know, lunacy. But once I completely fell apart there, they were making fun of me. Three of them were out. I sort of like changed my pitch. I said, okay, clearly you guys don't understand the opportunity in the paddleboard industry, but here's what we can do. And basically, I, I told them about how I could inject internet marketing into any business. And we, we'd create this like business flipping company where we buy a $10 million company inject what I know, sell it for 30 million two years later. And I said, that's an easy business. It's hard to go from zero to a million, but it's really easy to go from 10 million to 30 million. So I started pitching this entirely different thing than I came on the show to pitch. Both Cuban and Mr. Wonderful really resonated with that. They're like, I have like 50 companies. We can help out with these companies. That's really what I ended up getting the deal on. And they thought the paddleboard business was just sort of a flyer or whatever. I have to entertain this kid because he likes paddleboarding. So we'll give him money for that. And then he can help us in other stuff. I ended up getting offers from both of them. And the offer from Cuban was 150000 for 30% of the company and first right refusal to invest in any business I raise money for in the future. And that was a first in the history of Shark Tank, where it was really more of an investment in just sort of me and any other businesses we could do, as opposed to the business that I was pitching. The reality of it is, now you fast forward, that aired in, it took like nine months to air. It aired in 2012 in March, five, six years ago. We've done over 30 million in, in revenue since then, which makes us, and Cuban did put a lot of money into this. He's cashed out nearly a million dollars and he still owns this 30% equity stake. That makes it one of his most successful investments in the history of Shark Tank. And it makes us one of the top 10 investments uh, ever on the show. Looking back, what gave you the confidence to say that you could take a company from 10 to 30 million? Because that's basically what you were pitching, right? Well, I had, I was telling them about the poker chip business and I said, I'd taken it from, you know, nothing with no money to basically the top of the industry there. I mean, that was a very niche company. My brother had a sort of a catalog company that I had sort of helped him with and sort of, we were growing, I was growing the poker chip business, he was growing the catalog business. He injected sort of the same stuff that I was doing and took that from a quarter of a million a year to about an $8 million company in a period of six or seven years. And then the radiology company, we took it from nothing to the top of the industry. And I sort of said, like, I've done this in a lot of different industries. And it doesn't matter whether it's on paddle boards or tree climbing supplies or, you know, radiology. It's the same model. And I can apply that to anything. And sort of that was where I was going there. Whether I could do it or not, that's another question. You know, I'm still struggling with the paddleboard business. We're at seven and a half million. With those other companies, is there one thing or maybe a couple things that you can think of that helped you grow? Like, what are the rules or what formula have you used to be able to do that? The two companies, you know, I can't speak too much to my brother's company because I'm not working in that company. It was him. We were just sort of comparing notes and he was doing similar stuff that I was doing. But with the poker chip business and the paddleboard business, there's two similarities there. These were markets that were brand new, that were trending. There's this huge wave of popularity about this thing. 
And so you're able to start a new brand in that online. It's harder to go into a business that is just the same as it was 10 years ago. And there's all these established brands that go in there and compete online. But what makes them good internet businesses is I could tell, you can physically tell like how many people are searching for poker chips or clay poker chips. I could tell how many people are searching for stand-up paddle boards or inflatable paddle boards. That's information that is known. So demand is known. And then you can look at supply and say, well, these people are not meeting that supply because nobody sells a, a decent price paddleboard online. They have to go to a store and buy it or something like that. And in the poker chip time, there was just no poker chips you could even buy. The high-end ones, both those businesses that are why they're very similar and why when I started the paddleboard business, it was as if I could see around the corners and I knew what was going to happen next. Even today, it's like, I know this is probably going to dissipate a little bit and there'll be this sort of slow slide. So start something else or expand this brand, you know, diversify it into other products and find the next big trending product. I can see in the future because I had done that in the poker chip business, but both of these businesses are basically just meeting existing demand. You find demand and you meet it. And in the same period of time, I've started a bunch of other businesses that didn't have that. It was more like, oh, here's a cool product, I think. Let's go and see if we can sell this to anybody. A good example of that is a company called Smart Bar Drink Tokens. It was sort of a derivative of the poker chip business. So we had you know, a certain percentage of our customers were ordering these poker chips, getting them customized for their bar or restaurant or hotel to use as like drink tokens or like you know free coffee. So I discovered this sort of drink token industry. Uh, which is a 200-year-old thing. Like they used to use, this is what wooden nickels, where they came from. It was basically bars and restaurants creating their own currency. And then at happy hour, you'd get a drink and they'd give you, you know, another token to use later, you're used for another drink. You'd take it home and bring it back. It was this great marketing ploy that had been used for 200 years. Very effective and very big in the UK even today. So I figured, I'm going to go to these bars, sell to them. But the reality of that business is nobody is searching for drink tokens You've got to explain how this is valuable for their business, and then you've got to sell them on it. Whereas with poker chips, consumers are just searching for poker chips. Paddleboards, consumers are searching for paddleboards. People don't even know what these drink token things are called. They're not searching for it. So that's a horrible online business. And so every business that I've started where there's known demand and you just meet demand works great. Every business that I've tried where it's, I think I have an interesting product, and then I try to market it, failed miserably. There was another company that I started with a college buddy, and this was all between the poker chip company being successful and sort of starting to trail off and to the start of the paddleboard company. And there was a period of about five years in there where I was experimenting with other businesses. Yeah, this other company that I tried to start with a college buddy was called Discmo Kids Toys. It was essentially a poker chip that was customized with, we did different sets of these. Like we had one which was trucks and another one which was like African animals and another one which was like, fairy tale characters or something. And each of these sets was sort of color coded and numbered. It'd be 10 to 12 per set. It was this educational toy and it was sort of master plan from the beginning on what I saw my child doing with my poker chips. Like he would take them and he'd start throwing poker chips into a hat or something like that. He'd be stacking them. He'd be sorting them. He'd be doing all of this stuff. And so there was, there was all this sort of this active play. There was this counting. There was this color organization and stuff like that. And so we built that all into this toy. And there were like these, we studied educational toys. And there were these five great uses for this toy. Brilliant product, you would think. And we took it to a specialty toy trade show. This is the biggest specialty toy trade show in the world. It's like the wood toys and the educational toys. It was in, in Las Vegas. We took it to this trade show, me and my buddy. We went there and we won top 10 toy of the show. 
first trick show we'd ever been to. And we sold exactly two. We opened two wholesale accounts, basically two like toy stores. So it was like this great toy, but it had to be explained to everybody. And then once it got into those two stores, nobody bought it from there because then the store person wasn't explaining it to the other person. It seems like a great idea. And then in your head, you think this is going to kill, but there is no demand for this and you've got to sell it horrible business. Now I sort of look at every business in that perspective. Like, am I really meeting unmet demand here? Or am I creating something and then trying to sell it to people? Because that's a nightmare business. And the first one is easy. People just fall over themselves to give you money. Yeah. The key is like, it's just as good at those markets that you see actual growth. Again, I guess trying those little specialty or niche things that you've always had an issue with comparatively, right? Yeah. And it's not to say that those businesses can't work, but it requires a different skill set that I have. And online marketing, I mean, really where my expertise is, is in search engine optimization, putting a lot of content out there and getting people to come to your site for free. We get probably 40 or 50,000 people coming to the, the Paddleboard website a month for free and a certain percentage of them buy. So without spending any dollars, we can get sales and then that's sort of a profitable way to run a business. You have to sell the Discmo kids toys. You've got to advertise a lot. Every $20 set of these toys that you sell, you're going to spend $50 on advertising. You're going to lose money. How about when you got off Shark Tank? Is there anything that you learned from Mark? One of the interesting things that I've learned from Mark is sort of limiting your downside. I felt I was kind of starting from nothing here. So I always kind of felt there was nothing to lose. You know, as we're growing this business and we're, we're not, we didn't advertise the first three or four years of the business and we're growing like the first year we did 3,000. And then when Mark, the year Mark signed on, we did a quarter million. Then the next year, 1.3 million, then 3.1 million, then 5.1 million, then 7.5 million. So the growth trajectory has been fast and we're doing this with a product company. So we have three-month cycle times. we got to order these paddle boards and pay for a good chunk of them. And then they take three months to make them. And then we pay the rest of the bill on these. And then they ship them to us and we get them a month later and we can start selling them. It's a business that sort of eats cash. And so when you grow that fast in a business like that, it's very challenging from a cash flow perspective. So we were constantly out of product. Like it would be June 1st and we'd be out of our most popular paddleboard. I was, you know, going back to Mark and saying like, why don't you give me a million dollar line of credit and I can grow this to 10 million really fast here because we're constantly out of stock. I mean, like we're leaving so much revenue on the table. He didn't trust me. He didn't know me for the first year. So he just sort of ignored those comments. But he was also, he's like, who cares about the upside? He's like, worry about going to zero. That's the only thing you should worry about. (laughs) And I thought that was just like stupid. Like it doesn't make any sense. But if you look at his career, he's always been you know, more paranoid about things going south. And that has really been the key to his success. If you look at, he started one business and then he sold it for a few million dollars. So he had five or $6 million. And then the next business he started, he basically ran that up in the, in the internet run up. And then he sort of cashed out there from an IPO perspective. And then they immediately, and he did that at the height. He didn't wait until like the, the boom had come and bust. And then he immediately sold it to, to Yahoo and got out. And he was always paranoid about everything going to zero. And so he got out before everybody else would get out. And that was sort of the reason for success. I think that he taught me a lot about that. In the reality, if you have a company that's growing this fast, like who cares if you get another extra half a million or million dollar revenue when you've got a $3 million company? Because you're going to get that. You're going to catch up on that later. What you don't want to do is overextend yourself and then have you know all of this inventory sitting around. And then the market changes or something happens. And you're left sitting on that and you go to zero really quick and you lose it all. That was something I didn't really fully understand or appreciate up front. And that's something that he's, he's definitely taught me. 
And how are you applying those principles right now? We're being very conservative now that we've seen this market sort of leveling off. We're just being very conservative with certain products. We're just planning, you're doing planned sellouts, you know, through the year. We're not estimating huge growth. And when I do my financial projections, I'm doing very conservative projections. And then I'll do like a scenario of maybe 30% below that, a scenario of 30% above that. And then I sort of plan everything, sort of your cash flow management. So you're going to be fine on that lowest end. What do you expect? You take, you know, 30% below that and say, this is sort of the Armageddon scenario. And are you going to be perfectly fine from a cash flow perspective there? And then you try to figure out, okay, can you, is there ways you can plan inventory and plan the business such that if it goes 30% above, that you can sort of put things together and try to capture a percentage of that. So that's kind of how I do, you know, my planning and, you know, try to be conservative. Well, it sounds like you're getting into other lines as well. So at least you're kind of diversifying that way. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we don't see ourselves as a paddleboard company anymore. We started a new URL called towermade.com, which is just products made by Tower, which is everything means lifestyle. That's exactly what we're doing. We're just looking at the paddleboards as one spoke in a much larger company that essentially has 100 different spokes. Yeah, again, it's just minimizing the down risk there, as I guess you've already seen with the paddleboard just by having these other options. So I guess uh, looking back, what advice might you have for someone who's wanted to start their own company who's listening right now? There's a couple of trends that are going on. The product businesses are, are kind of what I know. So I think there's still opportunity there. And there's this sort of whole direct consumer thing happening, which is what Tower Paddleboards is, is direct consumer. But there's direct consumer eyeglasses, contact lenses, mattresses. And every little thing, retail is changing and it's going direct to consumer. That's the future. That's where the puck is going. And I think a lot of people look at the world and they see, okay, you've got you know Costco and Walmart. It's like all the big box retailers are struggling and it's just going to Costco and Walmart and Amazon, game over. But in my opinion, there's this whole army of these direct to consumer retailers that are making their own product and selling them direct to consumer at you know half the price. Um, and opting out of even the Amazons of the world. And I think that's the future. So pick a niche, go direct to consumer, keep your costs low, and try to build a product that you can have a very small team sell that product worldwide. I think there's like a product that interests you and that you know, and that you can add something to. And by going direct to consumer, you can give a much better value proposition to that consumer. And that can be in the form of just the same product at a much cheaper price or a much more advanced, much better product for the same price. Thank you for coming on and doing the interview. I really appreciate it. I mean, you had a lot of different tidbits and different companies. So yeah, I've definitely taken notes the whole time. And if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to do that? Tell somebody about the Tower Paddleboard. Let them know about my business and tell them to check it out. That would be the, <laughs> the best compliment we could get. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again for doing the interview. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Are you or your company interested in sponsoring millionaire interviews? If so, contact yours truly via email. I can be reached at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. Mention that you heard this sponsorship offer on the show and we'll give you a 69% discount on our sponsorship rates. As always, thanks again for tuning in.